This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. Daphne, how are you feeling? Well, you know, I think as good as you can feel, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. We just do the best you can. That's, that's right. Um, so let's let's give people a bit of an update. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're technically, according to the uh, unofficial schedule of the incubator, we're technically due for a journal club today. But instead, we are having the pleasure of having with us uh, Professor Richard Polin. And he is our second guest from our series, The Giants of Neonatology. And uh, we're very excited about having Dr. Polin on. But we are pushing off Journal Club by one week um, because our co-host has bigger (laughs) fishes to fry than to read uh, a paper uh, for Journal Club. That's well, fair. I think a lot of our listeners are will not be joining for Journal Club this week, even if we have one. <laughs> I, I, oh, heck! But but, but I, mean, uh-huh. I think I think people are not going to miss this interview. It's oh no, it's a really good interview. Oh no, it's not like we're giving you uh, second yeah. content. No, <laughs> please. Um, but I do have to say, when I was getting close to the board and I was spending all my time studying, and you see these articles coming out, right? Yeah, and you're like shit. Like how. How am I going to catch up? I have to write. I have to put pin this somewhere so that once it's over, I go back and I read this paper. But um, so that's what ex- that's exactly what we will do. Yeah. We will let the boards pass, and we m- will most likely have back to back weeks of Journal Club to catch up on some of the articles that we need to review. Um, so yeah, we're we're very excited to have Dr. Polin on. Anything else that we have to update the audience uh, on, Daphna? I don't think so. I okay, think that's it. So, Dr. Um, Richard Polin is the William T. Speck Professor of Pediatrics at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is the immediate past director of the Division of Neonatology at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital of New York Presbyterian. From July 1977 until January 1998, Dr. Polin was a faculty member in the Division of Neonatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1998, Dr. Polin returned to Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital of New York Presbyterian as the director of neonatology. In the spring of 2006, Dr. Polin received the National Neonatal Education Award from the AAP section on perinatal pediatrics. And in 2017, he was inducted into the Legends Hall of Fame. Dr. Polin is the 2021 recipient of the Abgar Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics. He has published over 200 original papers, 20 books, and more than 200 abstracts. Dr. Polin is the chair of the NICHD Neonatal Research Network Executive Steering Committee, and he is the past chair of the sub-board of neonatal perinatal medicine. Um, Dr. Richard Polin, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. 
I am delighted. Um, the, the first question we like to ask um, to our guests, and especially the guests that are part of, of this series that we started called The Giants of Neonatology, is that when you decided to pick the field of neonatology, the decision-making process was very different than the one that we have to we had to go, go through, considering how much had uh, already been accomplished in the field. When you're do, making that decision in the 70s, it's, it's a very interesting one. And I'm wondering what motivated, at the time, your pursuit of a fellowship and training in, in neonatal intensive care. So that's a great question. As I think back to the 1970s, basically 1972, when I made the decision to enter neonatology, there were two things, probably more, but that attracted me. One was an individual who I looked up to, who seemed to be charismatic and liked what he did and was smart and taught me a lot. And his name was John Driscoll, and a name most people don't know nowadays, but he was a former chairman of pediatrics at Columbia and chief of neonatology. And the other thing was, I enjoyed the obviously the intensity of caring for sick newborn babies. And the nice thing was, even in the 1970s, most babies who were ill got better uh, with supportive care, um, and uh, that was a an attraction for me uh, to enter neonatology. Do you think that um, what I get one one interesting follow up question to that is: Do you believe that the opportunities that the field presented to you back in the seventies are still? as prevalent as, as they were back then today for the, for the people who are transitioning from residency to fellowship? The answer is absolutely. In fact, I think the opportunities are even greater now than they were. Back then, we studied, uh, my research was on fairly elemental things in uh, dealing with neonatal physiology. Um, but I think the opportunities for more sophisticated research are opportunities to care for even sicker newborn infants, and obviously even more premature in newborn infants, is significantly greater in 2022 than it was back in uh, 1977. So mm -hmm. anybody entering the field should be excited about the things that can be done. I loved your comment about um, how much of our work is really supportive care. Um, but certainly neonatology has, is changing, right? And we're becoming uh, more and more invasive. Um, what do you think about that? So there, I always say there's the opportunity to become more and more invasive, but the best neonatal intensive care is often the simplest intensive care. Mm -hmm. So a phrase I've used, I'm not sure I own this phrase. I know others who have used it is don't just do something, stand there. So there's a zillion things you can do to care for newborn babies, different kinds of ventilation, antibiotics that we never even dreamed of, mm -hmm. uh, cardiac drugs. But sometimes the best thing to do is take a step backward, look at the baby, and decide what is best. And often that's the simplest thing and not the most complex thing. Mm -hmm. But requires a lot of uh, discipline and mm -hmm. uh, poise. Patience, huh? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the younger you are, the more you want to use stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, think, I guess I was that way back when I was younger too. But now I say some of that stuff is just stuff. 
and doesn't really make things better. And maybe it's better if we just look at the baby, decide what's best. And sometimes the simplest course of action is best. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In in preparing for this podcast, I I was reading a lot of different things you wrote and, and listened to a bunch of interviews you gave. And there was a sentence that you said, um, I forgot I forgot where I listened to it, but it was interesting and I wanted to ask you about it. You said that <clears throat> advancements in neonatal care have been evolutionary, but not revolutionary. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that because I want to hear what, you didn't go too much into, into that specific statement during the interview that I watched, but I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on that specific statement. So if you focus on the care of a preterm baby, and think about things that have to be done, everything from fluid electrolyte therapy to dealing with infectious disease and respiratory diseases and immaturity in a wide variety of systems. The advancements that have occurred in neonatology have all been important advancements, but relatively small advancements. You take surfactant. Surfactant was a great advancement in the 80s and, yes, early 90s. Um, it's really become part of our standard uh, regimen for preterm babies. But it took years until the safety and efficacy of surfactant was demonstrated. In fact, now I'll say that there's a trend to stop using surfactant when we have opportunities to use something like non-invasive ventilation, where the outcomes are even better. And the same is true for other aspects of, of, of care. The observations or things that have improved our care have been small ones. Mm-hmm. And you look at caffeine, caffeine seems to be a great advancement, but it wasn't revolutionary, it was evolutionary. And now we're struggling about when to use caffeine. Do we use it early? Do we use it late? Is it harmful to some babies what the right dosing is? So it's a never-ending story. And I think that as I look at how I've changed my practice, it's been, I'm an evidence-based person, I'll mm-hmm. say that up front. So I, I try to look at the literature rather than saying, wow, look what somebody did and this looks like it might be good for babies. If it might be good, that's probably not good enough for me. I try to choose interventions which or treatments which look like they're evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you still, um, do you think that our field will continue to evolve in this direction? of evolution rather than revolution? Or do you think that we are primed for a revolution of some sort? And I'm at the top of my head, I'm thinking of the work, for example, being done at CHOP on the bio bags and, and, and these things that d- definitely look revolutionary. But I'm wondering from your perspective, do you, what do you think, where, where are we going in your opinion? So in fact, as you asked that question, I thought of CHOP and I spent a lot of my career at CHOP and I know the surgeon who does that work it looks really interesting. I, I don't think in my lifetime as a neonatologist, my practicing lifetime, I'll ever see that as a, uh, a treatment option for, very, for fetuses that are very preterm who need to get the weeks until they become viable. So will that be revolutionary? If it, it's going to take a lot of evolution and changes mm-hmm. in, in what they're doing to make it effective. In fact, yesterday I received an email. And somebody was saying, do you want to join a team that will provide supportive care for the fetus in utero? And I, I haven't responded. I'm, I'm debating whether I, should, I have to say I'm debating whether I should respond at all. 
but, like Pandora's box over there. You careful <laughs> when you open. Yeah, yeah. I, I might. You know, we're already stretching limits with mm. the survival of twenty-two weeks of stations. And before we start to say, well, let's start to provide care for the fetus in some sort of bath, I think that there's a million steps which these two need to occur. And that means that it will be an evol by the time it evolves, it'll be using that word evolutionary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't see that as bec- becoming part of our mainstay of treatment. And just as there's still controversy about the very immature baby at born at lower margins of viability we, we could talk about what that is but mm. for me it's it's you know 22 weeks is barely viable mm-hmm. what i what i like about that kind of concept especially for say our trainees who are just trying to pick a, a research um project is everybody thinks that they have to do something revolutionary or you know the work um doesn't have value but i think Kind of what you're saying is that it's better to do something um, that may be small but rigorous and that we can integrate into kind of our daily practice. Yeah, absolutely. A phrase that I haven't heard recently, but we stand upon the shoulders of giants. Mm. And there were giants that preceded me in neonatology. We can go over their names, people like Jerry Loosley and Av Fanaroff and their uh, whole host of others that made great observations. And our continued progress is we take those and, and and let them evolve, make small advancements in a particular area uh, that improves upon what was started years and years ago. Again, we, it's the giants that preceded us that allowed us to uh, make further advancements. And and so what's great that you're mentioning this because mm-hmm. you are um... – you, you're the immediate past director of the division of neonatology at uh, Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York uh, at uh, Columbia. And to me, your view on evidence mm-hmm. follows in line very well with a former director uh, who was William Silverman. Uh, and and I, I mean, I have his book, Where's the Evidence? So do and, I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. And, and I can't help but feel that you are you're following in his footsteps so well with your approach to evidence i'm wondering if if he was also an inspiration to you as he is to me for example clearly the inspiration <laughs> should be an inspiration to all neonatologists mm-hmm. i remember back in the 70s when i was a resident at what they call baby's hospital back then he came to the hospital and uh, gave two days of well, two lectures, more than an hour each, on evidence-based medicine. I, and I said to myself, I didn't know him at the time. I said, this guy is extraordinary mm. in, his, in his approach to gaining knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, through, and then after I became the director at, at Baby's Hospital, I corresponded with him. I'm sure many people did. It's not just me. But he, he, would, see, he would say, Richard, what do you think about this idea? And he'd come mm-hmm. and write something that was pretty profound, something I had not, I had not heard of uh, before. So he, we corresponded over the years. But something he said to me back in the, or he said in the 70s, he said that Columbia should never have employed CPAP without a randomized clinical trial. Mm. And I totally agree with that. I mean, mm. I think, and it's been tested now, 
in a number of randomized clinical trials, all of which show that it's a benefit in terms of small benefit in many death or BPD. But he sort of, he's a Columbia person, but never forgave, I think, Columbia for not taking a great observation, and that was supporting babies through non-invasive ventilation and testing it to say whether it's Mm. effective or not. I don't know whether I should say that, but (laughs) but here's something he said to me in one of his letters. He says that Virginia Apgar, an icon, world famous, everybody knows the Apgar score, he says was anti-intellectual because she never wanted to test things in an evidence-based fashion. She made, obviously what she did was incredible. I'm not minimizing it, but he felt that she wasn't, she didn't approach what she did in an evidence-based fashion. And I, it I, it I, was, it was, I mean, that's, that I think is, is his, is his, um, is his, um, this, this is why he's so great is his, um, always abiding by the evidence, not mm-hmm. being biased, always only trusting science. And I think to me, his book on ROP, um, uh, 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 retroalento fibroplasia, mm-hmm. the modern perspective was such a great example of when you are not being rigorous and, and you let oxygen free flow, how all the, the, the side effects, all the, co- the negative consequences and how much time it can take to, to get back on track to something that could prevent harm. That's a really interesting story, which he tells a million, which he told a million percent better than me. But Wilson's observation you know, that oxygen would decrease periodic breathing led to the epidemic in the U.S. of uncontrolled uh, oxygen use in premature babies for the first month of life. And it took people from other countries, from Australia and UK, who are getting our incubators that could supply a lot of oxygen to premature babies to make the observation that oxygen was a major factor in causing uh, retinopathy or prematurity. I think that fits with your clinical practice, though, um, that we sometimes we do things just so we feel like we're doing something, right? So we're making a change um, and, and, and perhaps being more conservative and, and really looking at the evidence um, before we roll something out is, is definitely the, the safest thing to do. Yeah, I'm not ruling out learning from smart individuals. Mm. So if someone has spent a lifetime and it's, it's not been studied uh, as a randomized trial or a large observational trial, Sometimes listening to smart individuals makes sense to me. And uh, sometimes on rounds, in fact, I just got off service, I'll say, this is not an evidence-based statement. Mm-hmm. But by, in my practice, I found this useful. I was talking about caffeine for babies on non-invasive ventilation who are very immature. This makes sense to me uh, to do it this fashion. So there's still room for smart people and learning from smart people. And I don't want to give the impression that everything has to be evidence-based. I do think that's something that that plagues our, our trainees, though, when they say, well, why, especially in neonatology, well, why do we do this? And then we have to say, well, um, it, we don't have great evidence for it, uh, but it, but it seems to be working well for babies at this point. Right. And if, it's, if it seems relatively safe, I think that's the other thing. If someone recommends something, and there's a lot of risk for it, then I'm not sure you want to do it. But if it seems relatively safe, something like caffeine, which has side effects, but it's relatively safe, then it's okay to listen to a smart person say, they've had a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. This makes sense to me. Maybe I'll study in a randomized clinical trial. But for right now, this is uh, what I would recommend. 
I think this goes to one of the quotes that William Silverman has in this book, Where's the Evidence, by John Tuckey, who was a mathematician mm -hmm. who said, it's far better to have an approximate answer to the right question that is often vague than having the exact answer to the wrong question, which can always be looked to be made precise. <laughs> You're, that's a great quote. I, mean, I, don't, I don't remember that quote, but there are a lot of incorrect, precise answers, which which led us down paths that were just not fruitful. Right, and 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 that leads me to wanting to talk to you about about the the, the state of of neonatal evidence. I think uh, trying to close the the chapter on on William Silverman because I don't want to talk about William Silverman the whole interview. But he does make a case um, back at the time when he writes his book about we need more systematic reviews, we need more meta analyses, and and trying to really get data from randomized trials together to get the best possible level of evidence. And and I think since since he wrote these things, the Cochrane Library came into existence, and, and now we have a, a, a nice library of resources when it comes to meta-analyses. But what we notice these days is that many of the questions that the Cochrane Library is trying to answer, specifically for neonates, very often ends up with a statement that says, oh, we do not have enough evidence mm -hmm. to make a recommendation. And like we reviewed recently this Cochrane review on the uh, delayed initiation of feeds, Sometimes the evidence really spans a wide, a wide mm -hmm. time span where it's like, oh, some studies from the 70s plus some study from 2019. And so I'm wondering if you, um, if you feel like, I'm, I'm wondering what is your perspective on, these, on this, on this uh, shift in the medical evidence where these meta-analyses have taken over as, as the top of the pyramid? Uh, do you think we have to be cautious with them? So I give a talk on uh, balancing science and art and where do we learn? Mm -hmm. I think it's to put meta-analyses at the top of the pyramid is totally incorrect. Mm -hmm. I put it down like three or four steps. The will design large randomized clinical trial with sufficient power to answer the question for me belongs at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. It's a famous quote. For, it was in New England Journal of Medicine back in the 1990s. The author was Laurier. I may not have said his name correctly. It said something like this, if a subsequent randomized clinical trial had not been done, meta-analyses would have led to an incorrect assumption about 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that meta-analyses are useful. <coughs> they point us in the right direction, but they may not provide the truth. And sometimes they're dominated by one study. There'll mm -hmm. be 15 studies in a meta-analysis and one is large and 14 are small, and we're forced to accept the, the statistical result of showing one way or the other. But meta-analyses are, 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 are a guide, but for me, they don't dictate care. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm pretty careful with meta-analyses. Mm -hmm. Careful is the word. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like, um, to your point, that, um, you know, uh, science in general is moving away from replication of the evidence um, because everybody wants to be the next big thing or they want to be the first group to, um, you know, evaluate whatever it is that they're evaluating. Um, how do you think that has affected science? I think almost everything needs replication eventually. And the more it's people that replicate, the more we've refine, I'll use the word, refine the mm -hmm. observation that was originally made. And maybe it was incorrect, 
or maybe it was partially correct. Mm-hmm. I have an, uh, a lecture I'm putting together. I'm giving uh, overseas next week, and it's on PDA. And it's incredible that when studies replicate earlier observations, that how good ligation of PDA was. Now, Ron Kleiman is outstanding and is sort of the father of PDAs. I, I worship everything he writes, basically. But his original observation that ligation of the PDA was beneficial has since been disproven by 50 st- other studies, most of randomized clinical trials, which says that ligation of the PDA gets you nowhere. And now I think my approach and what I try to teach in the NICU is before you choose a to medically or surgically close or, or cardiac cath and close a PDA, you uh, ought to look and see what the evidence really says about that. There's very little to be gained by closing a PDA. So unless we had done these subsequent studies, mm-hmm. we've just accepted an observation from the 1980s, a time when antenatal steroids were not being used very much and our and our uh, Intensive care is very different to decide what to do. So I think that there's a need for replication and other studies to say, is this really true? If it's not, what it part is not true and we need to refine. I think this is such an important point that you're making. And I think you, you've written about this, but this to me makes me think of our overuse of antibiotics in the NICU. <laughs> where it was almost dogmatic that yes, you're admitted to the NICU, you had to be on on antibiotics, and and the the I mean, um, I think we I forgot I don't have the name of the paper in the top of my head, but we can share it on the on the website um, where uh, yeah you, you're t- going over the different immediate side effects, long term side effects, um, and these are sometimes unintended consequences because the motivations of the clinicians are good; they want to prevent something. Um, how, how, I mean, how do we change the tide on these dogmas that are sometimes established? I mean, you, I know you, mm-hmm. you started answering that question by saying having to question, but it can be very hard. Like, how do we overcome the, I mean, if you're a young investigator, it's, it's very daunting to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question <laughs> mm-hmm. this thing that everybody is doing uh, around. So, uh, so most, so first of all, I want to say, when I talk about antibiotics, I, I say, uh, mea culpa, I'm not sure I, I am to blame, because I was a person who recommended all kinds of antibiotics. I was part of the original CDC treatment guidelines. The uh, I, I wrote the Academy of Pediatrics Committee of Fetus and Newborn Guidelines, precepts, mm-hmm. and basically those were all wrong. And I'm willing to say that now, because we weren't smart enough. Mm-hmm. And finally, someone started to ask the question, initial question, does, does prolonged treatment with antibiotics uh, have a uh, risk or benefit for newborn infants? I remember one of the studies by Mike Cotton, who was chief of neonatology at Duke, and he showed us that prolonged use of antibiotics increases the risk of late-onset sepsis, increases the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. And then following that, a whole host of studies show that even three or four days of antibiotics changes the microbiome of a newborn infant. And those changes in microbiome, again, subsequent studies have been related to a lot of diseases which appear in childhood or in adulthood, like allergy, asthma, diabetes, obesity, 
just to name a few. So somebody had to say, is this the right thing? The advantage that some people have is that, um, that Mike Cotton had, he took a large database and asked the questions. Sometimes important questions don't start with a randomized trial. They start with an observational study. And then his observational study led to other observational studies and the whole microbiome project starting in the 1990s allowed us to investigate small changes in flora that were associated with uh, adverse outcomes in childhood. I love um, that you're able to be so, um, you know, reflect and introspective on that and to say, you know, we have new evidence and that maybe modifies um, some of the, you know, the recommendations we've been making. Why do you think it's hard for so many in, in academia to say like, well, maybe that was wrong and maybe we have to reevaluate that? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a great question. I much human nature, nobody likes to say mm. that they're wrong. Uh, but sometimes you just have to own up and say, listen, that sounded right at the time based mm-hmm. on the data that we had. Yeah. That we had back in the and I wrote some of those reports in the early part of this millennium in around 2010 or so. And based on new data, those were not the right things to do. And we were, and now the newest recommendations, which are not mine, uh, from the Committee of Fees of Newborn, uh, identifies groups of babies who probably don't need antibiotics mm-hmm. at, at the time of birth. And I think that's the right approach. However, however, we still don't know in a symptomatic baby whether it's better to treat that baby with antibiotics mm-hmm. or, uh, or not. And that's... Uh, we have an ongoing NIH study that's trying to answer that question. Yeah, well, I think, like like you said, being a part of the discussion and the process helps pro- helps with progress um, by not being able to say, well, maybe maybe there there is a modification to make that um, you know might people be be standing in in the way of progress. So so I appreciate your openness about that. Uh, one of my advantages. Uh, whether it's good or bad, I've been invited to give a lot of lectures over my career. And listening to smart people tell their story and how they view the issues has been of great help to me in sort of transforming my own thoughts about what's good, what's bad, etc. So I've been lucky to be able to listen to some really smart people, and that's affected how I practice and how and it's also affected the research I've been involved in. Hmm. Um, I, I want, Richard, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your role as a clinical educator, because again, in researching this podcast and preparing for this podcast, everybody I spoke to highlights how amazing and, and how great you are as a clinical educator. And I wanted to then ask you a very simple, but maybe difficult question. <laughs> what makes a great clinical educator? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, <laughs> hard question. And the simple simple part of that, someone who really cares about education and training the future uh, clinicians and academicians that will follow. So caring about them. And then the steps involved are, obser- it starts just like research. You start with observation. They say, well, that person really gave a great lecture or I really enjoyed 
rounding with that individual. What do they do that I can incorporate into my own practice? So it, just like research or more rigorous topics, you can look at education and learn from watching other people and then inc incorporating that into your own style. I'm sure my educational style is, is what I've learned from a, uh, a whole bunch of other individuals who, who did it well. And, um, and then what I try to do when I'm on service, I just finished service, as I told you, is pass on those tricks of education to the fellows I'm working with. They're, mm -hmm. they're the next generation in neonatology and say, look, I, what I, I say to them, you conduct rounds to them. I'm going to watch you conduct rounds. And they'll go and they'll, they'll be a baby with a respiratory distress syndrome. And they'll ask the residents about RDS and about surfactant and timing of surfactant and outcomes. And I say, well, you're really knowledgeable about that, but that's not how you teach people <laughs> in an informal setting. And one of my <clears throat> phrases is uh, for trainees is that trainees will remember three facts, but they'll never remember 300 facts. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to teach somebody, and it's, it's true for a lecture too, and you're trying to get points across, you got to be selective in what you want to teach and teach those three things and try to teach it in a fashion that's remembered. One of my skill sets, or I, I don't know if it's skill sets, is to always try to pair teaching about something with a little bit of history that might be fun. So pairing... Mm -hmm an important clinical fact with something that's totally irrelevant. For instance, <laughs> we all know the story of phototherapy and Sister Ward. Uh -huh. so, but the residents hear that the first time and hear that story about phototherapy, and then you talk about phototherapy, you give them the three facts, it's much more likely they'll remember that uh, as part of their knowledge base than if you try to say everything about bilirubin and phototherapy, etc. So I try to... My approach to education is try to be as simple as possible, try to pass on the skills to the next things that have helped you in your, your career. And I still, I watch other people lecture and I say, what's good, what's bad about that? I've learned how to, in the hard fashion, trying to conduct construct slides. I've had a lot of bad slides in my career. I try to do this <laughs> in, in, in a much clearer fashion. So you learn by watching and observing. I'm sure people do the randomized clinical trials. I'm not an educator, so I'll, I'll never be part of that. But there is a lot you can learn just from watching other individuals. I need a Richard Paul in consult then, because what, <laughs> what, you, uh, what you just referred to right now is that you're saying, oh, you're going to give a few facts on rounds. But sometimes I feel like I maybe like I'm 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 early in my career, and yet I still feel sometimes like am I saying this for the fifteen hundred time again on rounds? Mm -hmm. Are the nurses going to say, "Oh, this guy just keeps repeating the same the old same thing every, every time"? <laughs> and I am wondering, how do you deal with this? Because you're never sure if the person who are on the people who are on rounds have heard you say those things, and then you're worried about. Did I, am I repeating? Am I saying the same thing again? And because you're the attending physician, nobody is going to tell you, hey, buddy, like, this <laughs> we is already it. learned that. <laughs> you are exactly correct. So I always, so as you know, resident teams during change during a rotation. So I'll start with one resident team and teach them some facts. A new team will come in, I'll try and teach them similar information. I always preface, and then they'll come back for another rotation. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I preface and say, I apologize if I have said <laughs> this to you in the past, but it's important. And here's, here's why it's important. And so mm -hmm. here are the three things you want to remember about fluid electrolyte therapy in babies or the two things you remember about uh, treating hypervalorinemia. So I, 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 I preface it with an apology. And uh, I'm sure I repeat myself. I mean, sometimes I, rem I remember repeating myself. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. That's when it happens and you're like, shoot, I did say that earlier did this that. week. <laughs> earlier this, on the last baby, right? On the last baby. Or the person before me on the service mm -hmm. could have said mm -hmm. a similar thing. And they'll say, oh, yeah, Dr. So-and-so said that. I'll say, oh, great. I apologize. <laughs> we'll move on from from there. But we, I think repetition is part of the educational mm -hmm. process and it's important. And, and so if you repeat things, chances of them remembering your first go around are not very good. Mm -hmm. So repetition is good for all of us. All right. I feel better. I feel better about myself. You should Thank feel you. Better. <laughs> I think that could be a book, you know, three things and you, you could whole, give your top three things about a whole host of uh, topics. I would, I would, I would get so my that favorite book sure. my favorite write Richard, that book. <laughs> my favorite Richard Pollan book is the fetal uh, mm. and secrets right mm -hmm. I mean you wrote many many books um, I'm not gonna even attempt to list all the books you you uh, edited written contributed to but the the secrets is somehow it's on my nightstand and like it's always cool like you pull it up and you get a few facts mm -hmm. um, how did that idea come about I mean I'm the reason I'm saying this is I kind of feel like I know what you're going to say, but you are, you wrote textbooks, right? I mean, you, you wrote textbooks and then how do you say, Ooh, I'm going to write a little handbook with some random facts about every uh, organ system in neonatology. <laughs> so here's, here's a story. It's a true story. It started with pediatric secrets, not a neonatology textbook, which I have, by the way, <laughs> thank you for purchasing that. So, yes. um, I wrote a chapter for a, pediatric publication, I forget, it was an AAP publication on necrotizing enocolitis. And we did that, did that as case studies. And I read it, I wrote it with a non-neonatologist. His name was Fred Berg, name you'll never remember, a very good educator, died a number of years ago, quite suddenly. And after we did that, the editor, one of the editors from Elsevier, who's Elsevier was not, it was called Saunders back then. Mm, that's right. Uh, but before, even before that, there was a woman named Linda Belfus who uh, gra gradually or eventually became uh, a senior member at Saunders, invited me to do a whole book of case studies. And we, we included necrotizing enocolitis. And we're now, I think, thinking about our seventh edition. Of, of that, um, so that's called, let me go back, that's called the Workbook and Practical Neonatology, right. you, may, you may have seen, that's all case yes. studies, in fact, my new co-editor for that's going to be Tom Hayes, you, mm -hmm. who you know. Yeah, who actually, who actually, I wanted to give a shout out to at the end of the show, but he's he's uh, responsible for making this interview happen, so Tom, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so Tom's going to be my co-editor, and Secrets, Pediatric Secrets, was a, a thought of Linda Belfus, who also was our person for the workbook in practical neonatology. And my co-editor, who I still have, his name is Mark Dittmar. He's a great general pediatrician. And we decided to do facts about a wide variety of things, 
but combining it with humor. So mm-hmm. if you look at especially pediatric secrets, has a lot of humor. In fact, mm-hmm. it has cartoons. If you look at the um, cover or the inside page for pediatric secrets, has pictures of our latest edition, our children and our grandchildren. We mm-hmm. thought that would be fun to put into it as a cover to a book. So com- again, it's just like I say when I teach them rounds, I try to com- combine useless facts with facts that are important about diseases. I think both secrets, pediatric secrets and fetal neonatal secrets, use the same strategy of combining, I won't call it irrelevant, but interesting irrelevant information with things that are important to learn about diseases. And most of our questions in the book are, are short. They're not long. It's not someone's going to tell you everything about RDS. We're going to answer a simple question about, is this better or is that better, and get somebody's perspective. And uh, Pediatric Secrets, I think, is in its sixth edition now, and in a year or two will be in its seventh edition. Amazing. Yeah. Go ahead, Ben. Did you have something? No, no. Go ahead, Daphne. No, I... Um, you're quite humble about your skill set in being a, a clinical educator. And um, not only are you a clinical educator, but it's a totally different skill set to be a mentor, right? For young, um, young physicians, young clinicians, and especially in the arena of research. Um, and obviously you valued um, the mentors that you had. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what you think it means to be a good mentor. So I've had good mentors and bad mentors. I can say that. <laughs> and when That's I, how you learn, I guess. <laughs> yeah. When I was a fellow, uh, I got stuck with some really bad mentors who would come into the lab. These are laboratory mentors once a week and say, hey, Rich, what are you doing? And I try to sit down and tell them what I'm doing. And then they come back a week later and say, hey, Rich, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. The good mentor for a research project is someone who you who – you're seeing or you, in which you're meeting with an individual at least three times per week, five days a week, not necessary, but at least three times per week to find out where are the roadblocks? What are they doing? Are they making any progress? Are the results not what you would expect? I always tell people, when, if you do an experiment and the results are what you expect the first time, you've probably done something wrong and you <laughs> ought to repeat the experiment because it's likely to be incorrect. So it's, it's taking an interest in, in, in what the individual is doing and meeting with them on a regular basis and offering ways to help them move their research along. And I did have mentors along my career who were like that. Uh, I've had mentors in the laboratory, a good friend of mine, Bill Speck. Bill Speck used to be the CEO of, of, of Presbyterian Hospital and Chief of Pediatrics at Case Western Reserve. When I was in his lab, he was there every day, and we would talk about experiments we were we were going to do. Uh, and I've had mentors in my career, mentors, and, um, and people like names that may not be familiar to most people. Dick Richard Behrman. Richard Behrman is one of the editors of, used to be one of the editors of Nelson, Nelson's textbook of pediatrics. Waldo Nelson was his father-in-law. Like I said, helps have a father-in-law who... Um, who had his, uh, who's in Nelson's textbook of pediatrics. But him and other mentors in my career, uh, Dick Johnston, famous immunologist, one of my mentors when I was at the uh, Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia. I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, 
Uh, It's like an an Oscar winning speech. You you cannot forget. You can't forget someone. Uh, Let's see. There, there, there are others in my career, and they're more career mentors. And I say, mm-hmm. I have an op- I'd write to somebody and say, listen, I have an opportunity to do this now. Is this good for my career? Is this bad for my career? What do you think? And people come to me with, with similar kinds of questions about, I've been offered a job at X, Y, or Z. Is this, is this the right kind of opportunity for me? So I, I, serve, I try to serve that purpose because there are people in my life uh, who uh, serve that purpose for me? Uh, so it's re- there are career mentors, there are research mentors, there are, I um, there are mentoring I do in the NICU as I already mentioned on a regular basis in terms of education. Um, I, I wanted to go back a little bit about the the number of books that you've written, and it's and it's interesting to me because for many influential physicians who have written books, you often associate them with a single series. But in your case, I, f- I find that this is quite mm-hmm. difficult to pin you down to one specific book that this is the, the book you really devoted most of your time to. I think all the books that you've contributed to or written or edited are, are all amazing in their own rights. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, how, yeah, how do you pick um, so many different projects and make sure that they don't... Uh, overcast the, the other you know um i think this is this is very interesting to me they're all very different books pediatric secrets and fetal and neonatal secrets are short questions uh about a wide variety of topics workbook and practical neonatology are all case studies uh and, and the individuals who read the chapters go work through those case studies the physiology book is totally dense mm-hmm. i read i read every edition almost completely. Now I have a bunch of co-editors who are just fantastic, and we split some of the editing, editing opportunities. But it's, it's, I don't expect anybody to sit down and read that whole textbook from start to finish. Mm-hmm. It's just Im- impossible. And they're all forms of education. The um, secrets books are made for more for residents, I think. Uh, also for fellows, but Pediatric secrets clearly for pediatric residents. The workbook is is, is very popular with nurses uh, and with um, our neonatology fellows. And the physiology book is meant to be a reference textbook. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm yeah. I do others. I have to say that every time I edit, I learn. So mm-hmm. it, I, it's, people say, "Isn't it hard work?" And I say, "Yes." It's, when I do the physiology book, I basically work seven days a week. I read chapters. I take it with them on airplanes. I do editing when I'm traveling, but I learn from all that, from all that work. Because I don't write everything. I hope you, you you say me writing. I don't write everything. I've written a lot of chapters in my time, but I I read and edit what really what I think are really smart people have written, mm-hmm. and so I've learned. It's been great for me because I've learned and made myself a better clinician and academician. Yeah, it's almost um, going back to this mantra of it's more important to it's it, the message is not as important as the messenger. If you can be a great messenger, sometimes it's it's very powerful. And I have to say, the educa- I've done a lot of research studies, and I'm still doing them. But education is probably the most important, is the most satisfying part of my career. Hmm. Passing on my information, 
I always say that when I teach somebody something, the greatest fun for me is to hear that person mm-hmm. recite the exact same fact to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that's what education is all about. But how do you manage? I mean, honestly speaking, today you you um, you are doing rounds, you're on service, and when all these projects collide, like how do you devote? How, how can you? create a little vacuum around each project so that you could give them your full attention and not be distracted by your administrative duties, your clinical duties, the research. It's, it's, it, I'm wondering if you have any tips or tricks for the few of us who are uh, overwhelmed on a constant basis. I am overwhelmed on a constant basis. I, I, I join your group in through this. So when, I, when I'm on service, my days, I, I get into the nursery about, 6.30 in the morning, and I examine all the babies, and I look at lab data, I talk to our nurses, really important. Mm. One of my favorite phrases, you can learn uh, everything about a baby in three minutes by talking to a nurse that would take you three hours in front of a computer. Mm-hmm. That's so I, true. I, I tell our residents, talk to the nurses, they know what's going on. And so all day, I, I, I come back to my office, I have as you know, nowadays we throw long notes. We use Epic at Columbia, and I put my notes into Epic. And then at the end of the day, I make rounds again with my fellow, uh, going over all the cases. And then at at that point, I'll either go home or I'll work in my office, trying to do the things that I've not done that are part of my schedule. And if that involves editing or writing, I'll spend an hour or so after the day. And when I go home at night, uh, and on weekends after dinner or after, or free time on the weekends, that's when I have the, the time to do the editing and writing that I've not done during the week. But there's no easy way. That's all I can say. There's no easy way. And I get frustrated just like everybody else. And I feel overwhelmed by the things I have to do. And I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a multitasker. I, I, I don't, and that helps a little bit. You have, you have to be. <laughs> that I, I can go from one project to another do something, make a change, and then go back to a third project or to the original project. I, I, I found that I can do that in my career. It sounds like um, your family is also really important to you. And I, you know, ha, you know, how, how I have two, a two part question. So how do you, you know, balance being able to, cause it sounds like you're writing, editing, working, you know, every day of the week, um, like so, so many, um, people are. Um, and my follow-up question is, is, do they know that you're basically a, a celebrity in neonatology? Oh, that's a great, <laughs> interesting question. So, uh, I, you may know I, I won this award, I won the APCAR award in neonatology mm-hmm. and it was a, a great honor. And, uh, when I, they had a virtual award session, and I have said publicly on more than one occasion, I could not have accomplished mm-hmm. one-tenth of what I accomplished in my career without my wife being the, and it's a bad word, glue, but being mm-hmm. the person who really runs our family from start to finish. And I don't think you ever know what your parents really do for a living. I know my father was a teacher. Maybe that's why I like enjoy education, mm-hmm. a principal. Uh, but I'm not sure I knew what he did on a day-to-day basis. And my kids knew I worked in an ICU, but never really understood. And I, they all came when the App Card Award was given uh, uh, virtually a few weeks ago. And, and 
Richard Martin, a friend of mine, presented the award and, and heard what I did in my career. So I think for the first time, they may have heard what I really do for a living, although mm-hmm. not really understanding what someone on the outside would, would say, what neonatology or intensive care is all about. And my kids growing up would know that I was busy. And if I came home at 7 o'clock at night, that's when we had dinner. If I came mm-hmm. home at 8 o'clock, that's when we have dinner. So my kids would never eat first. We always had that time together as a family where we talk about everything or nothing. And so my kids knew that they were part of me being successful and mm. they would do things before. And so they, they were flexible uh, in terms of my own uh, career. So my kids now know, I think, what I've accomplished in my career, but I'm not sure they still understand what I do really, in taking mm-hmm. care of babies and the ethical Same. issues and the other problems mm-hmm. that we're all faced with in, in our career. They don't understand that, but they loved hearing it. I had even my daughter in Australia listen, uh, hearing the accolades that were given as part of the APGAR Award. I have a funny story that happened to me that exemplifies exactly what you're describing. When I was growing up in France, I was home from college working on my organic chemistry homework, and I was struggling with a problem. And my mother who is a pharmacist, um, came, mm. came next to me and solved it. And I looked at her saying, how do you know this? And, and she said, what do you think I, I do or yeah. trained? <laughs> <laughs> and it's exactly what you're describing, this realization. <laughs> oh, my mother knows chemistry. <laughs> um, yeah. When I was growing up, I'll just tell you a quick story. I would do my homework. and uh, This is when I was in junior high and high school, and my father, who was a principal, as I already said, would sometimes work at night to earn enough money as a principal of a night school, and he would come home at 10 o'clock at night and sit down with me and go over my homework mm-hmm. and say, yeah. this is wrong, this is bad, this is good, but he, would, he, he took the time to do that, and that, I tried to do that in my career, not at 10 o'clock at night, but things that uh, try to help my children along the way. It's so it's so cool um, to hear people as accomplished, especially as as you are, um, that you have a lot of gratitude. I think for um, the people in your life, and you um, do a really good job of recognizing others. Um, and I just think that's something we can all learn from. That by raising other people up, it, it makes you know all of us. Um, stronger, and I'm, I'm hopeful you can speak a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. So, whenever our fe- our fellows present frequently, as I'm, I'm sure where you are, they present frequently, and whenever someone does something well, whether it's a research presentation or a just a summary of the literature in a specific area, I try to take the time to write them and tell them what a great job they've done. It's something that we do don't do very much in our lives. Uh, tell people when they're doing a great job. I try to tell the residents when they've done that, or medical students when they've done a great job. So, picking out—not picking out, but identifying people who have done great jobs or even adequate jobs—and giving them—it's <laughs> not always perfect, but giving them praise. Mm-hmm. And we don't, in our specialty, we don't provide enough praise. Uh, for people who are really working hard too. So I, I try to do that on a regular basis. 
I have one last question and, and we're running short on time, so mm -hmm. we're going to have to wrap up soon. But um, I wanted to know if you could share with us what is your secret to being enthusiastic and continuing to do the work you're doing, both in education and in clinical, this clinical setting at your, at, the sta at your stage of your career. I feel like a lot of people that we speak to, especially young career neonatologists, even mid-career there's this frightening assessment that you hear from people sometimes saying, I won't be able to do this for another 20 years. And they, they, <laughs> the, the, the outlook is so uh, bleak. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and then we get the pleasure of talking to uh, great neonatologists like yourself and like we did with Dr. Wally Carlo not too long ago. And we see this flame, this passion uh, that's, that feels everlasting. I'm wondering how do we foster that? How do we yeah. make this happen? How do we bottle it up <laughs> and drink it? <laughs> Wally's a good example because he's still got the flame, I would say. He's a, yes. And if what you do is challenging and rewarding, it's got to have both of those parts to it, then you got you, there's no reason you should cut your career based on an age uh, that you're at. And, I, I, and every day in the NICU, I am challenged. Not every case is challenging, but there are a lot of really challenging cases. And the reward is baby gets better, someone learns something new, uh, the family has gotten through a very difficult, there's a lot of rewards that come in neonatology. And yes, I get tired and some days I'll come back and say, holy cow, can I keep doing this? And I come back the next morning and I'm refreshed and we'll make rounds again and the challenges and rewards are there again. And I guess if they ever stopped being there, then I would not do it anymore. But I, I just don't see that happening to me at this point in my career. My only limitation, I get tired. And I guess mm -hmm. everybody gets tired, but uh, but it's something that's, the challenge and reward way overwhelm the fatigue that it comes with uh, working in the ICU. Well, thank you. That that's That's great. Yeah, my my last question is you've seen so much um throughout your career. Obviously, neonatology has changed uh over and over again. Um what do you what do you think is next? What's the next frontier in neonatology? Next frontier in neonatology. I mean, the simple answer is prematurity and doing better without it, it for years, we all have focused on mortality, and clearly that's important, but the wrong focus. And when families, once they get beyond mortality, when my baby live or die, are interested in what my baby be like as they develop. And I think improving neurodevelopmental outcomes, either by how we practice neonatology, and I have to say that my practice, I try to make my practice as neonatology as gentle as possible. Uh, or by medical th therapies. And now erythropoietin or dobropoietin is not, maybe not the answer, but there are probably ways that we can improve developmental outcomes. Hypothermia, small benefit. It's not the, clearly not the major benefit for hypoxic ischemic brain injury. But I, 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 I see neurodevelopment as the next great frontier in neonatology. That must make you happy, Daphne. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think um, 
it had been ignored for some time because we were tackling some of these um, other problems. And so it does bring me a lot of joy to hear that that is what's up and coming. Um, gosh, this this uh, hour with you has flown by. I'm not surprised at all. We've had so much fun and um, we, we've learned a lot. So so certainly you've taught, taught us something just in this last hour. I know our listeners will be so grateful. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for your time. Thanks to both of you. I've had fun too. Yeah, and I, and I want to thank Tom Hayes again, Dr. Tom mm. Hayes, for for helping us arrange this. And uh, Tom, if you're listening, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Dr. Paul, and this was amazing. And I'm sure that uh, the listeners will will get as much out of this interview as mm-hmm. we did today. So so thank you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day and stay well. That sounds good. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.